This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. And I am coming to you live from my little studio beneath the stairs in Thornhill, Ontario, just north of Toronto. My technical producer, Carlos Kajina, is steering the ship this evening from behind the big audio board at Zoomerplex in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. And Ryan White is producing the live stream from his basement lair somewhere in Toronto. And we are live streaming, incidentally, on the YouTube channel Strange Planet. So get on up there and hit that red sub button. And uh, let's see if we can get to 20,000 subscribers in the next month or two. Speaking of Ryan, you know, I don't know where Ryan lives. He's never invited me to his house. Never. Now, of course, he has a perfect excuse. Um, But uh, how are you, incidentally, managing with the uh, the self-imposed quarantines and the social distancing? People are hurting financially, of course. People are scared, obviously. People are getting very sick some people are dying uh, but i know we're going to come out of the uh, out of this on the other end better better people closer to friends and family kinder uh, to people and most importantly when things get back to normal and they will when things get back to normal i think we're all going to be more grateful and you can only achieve happiness When you're grateful, when you show gratitude. Uh, UFO researcher, author Len Kasten is standing by to discuss his new must read, Dark Fleet, the secret Nazi space program and the battle for the solar system. And he'll be here for the full two hours. And we will open up the phone lines for questions and comments in the second hour. So keep your powder dry. Allow the uh, the conversation to um, develop and uh, marinate, if you will. And then in the second hour, we'll open up the phone lines and, and you can have Adam. Uh, in Dark Fleet, uh, Len reveals that the Nazis did not really lose World War II. 
They made it appear that way in order to divert attention from the alliance between the Fourth Reich and the race of aliens known as the Reptilians, an ancient galactic civilization obsessed with conquest and domination. And after the Germans surrender in 1945, the Nazi Reptilian Alliance infiltrated the U.S. military industrial complex through Operation Paperclip. The Nazis and Reptilians removed their political opponents, such as the Kennedys, and moved into policy-making positions in post-war America, infiltrating aerospace companies, banking, media, and the U.S. and gov- government, including NASA and the CIA. But their real target, their real target was not the United States. It was the solar system. Len Kasten is a UFO researcher and freelance writer. He's a former member of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena and the Mutual UFO Network. He's the author of The Secret History of Extraterrestrials, Secret Journey to Planet Serpo, and Alien World Order. And again, his latest is Dark Fleet, The Secret Nazi Space Program and the Battle for the Solar System. Len Kasten, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Do we have Len? Apparently not. We're not sure where he is. All right. Well, he's supposed to be joining us uh, from, where is Len tonight? He's in Casa Grande in, uh, in Arizona. Well, Carlos, if, uh, if you could raise Len, get him back into the conversation, that would be helpful. In the meantime, let me direct your attention to my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. Have you subscribed yet? No? Well, it's real easy. Here's all you need to do. Go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. That's my website. That's the, the portal uh, to this radio program, my, my podcast, and, uh, and so forth. And um, there's a button there. As soon as you get on the, uh, the landing page, it says, click here to register. All we need is your first name, last name, and your email address. And then starting in April, if you haven't subscribed yet, starting in April, you'll receive Inner Sanctum free every month delivered right to your email inbox. And, uh, and once, once you're um, uh, registered, you're also automatically registered for my monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise at the Strange Planet shop. And there are T-shirts and mugs and tote bags and um, socks and phone cases, uh, you name it. All right. So strangeplanet.ca, register for Inner Sanctum. It's free. It comes every month delivered right to your email inbox, Inner Sanctum. All right, we are still trying to raise Len Kasten, and uh, it says he's in the chat. He's online. He's in our chat. Not sure if he can hear me, uh, but we're not hearing him. So, uh, Carlos, back in studio, do you want to take a timeout, and we'll try to raise Len? Can we do that? Let's do it. All right. We will reach out to Len Kasten and uh, discuss the secret Nazi space program and the battle for the solar system. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Back with more in a moment. 
corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right. Welcome back. Uh, Len Kasten is he's out there <laughs> in the. Uh, on the internet somewhere, but we're not able, or he's not able to hear us, or we're not able to hear him, but we're trying to raise him. The author of Dark Fleet, Secret Nancy Space Program, and the Battle for the Solar System. Uh, and while Car- uh, Carlos is yeah. trying to raise Len, uh, Len, if you do happen to be listening, just email me your phone number and we'll get you on uh, that way. In the meantime, I guess we'll just open up the phone lines and take your questions and comments questions and comments and let me give you those numbers in the greater toronto area 416-360-0740 again in the gta greater toronto area 416-360-0740 416-360-0740 and toll free from just about anywhere 1-866-740-4740 one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. All right. Now, let me also uh, address or uh, uh, draw your attention to my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited, and um, the uh, the podcast drops every Monday and Wednesday and Friday. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's uh, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, and uh, you can uh, subscribe and begin listening right away. You know, I have produced over 370 episodes uh, now, and we are closing in on 400,000 unique downloads every month. It's just uh, growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, Very pleased with the response I'm getting uh, from the podcast, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com to listen and subscribe. And it's now available on Spotify. All right. So uh, I don't know. Do you want to talk coronavirus? I would love to hear how you're managing. How are you managing with the, the self-quarantining and the, uh, the, the social distancing and so forth? How are people behaving in your neighborhood? How are people behaving in the grocery stores? I have to say, uh, we have a couple of grocery stores that we shop at. Uh, One is called Food Basics, uh, about five minutes from here. And uh, the shelves are stocked reasonably well. Of course, there are some items uh, that uh, that go missing pretty quickly. Toilet paper, paper towels. Uh, You know, this has been talked about uh, many, many times on social media. Why people decide to hoard toilet paper. I I guess it's just kind of instinctual. I don't know. Um, If you think that you're, that, that, that there's going to be some sort of breakdown in, uh, or disruption in delivery, uh, you, you automatically assume that you're going to have to hoard certain items, batteries for flashlights. Um, but toilet paper, I don't know. Anyway, uh, at the food basics, people are, behaving in a very orderly, uh, polite fashion. And uh, I noticed, though, that the cashiers at our food basics, they will not, they'll smile, they'll wave, but they won't talk. 
they won't talk. They won't uh, engage in conversation. I guess they don't want to risk uh, putting some particulates into the air or something like that. Anyway, if you'd like to talk about how people are behaving at the grocery store, how you're managing, what are you doing uh, during this uh, this extended period of isolation or, or let's call it uh, self-quarantining? Uh, let's see. Who do we have here? Uh, we've got well, Al is on the line from Scarborough. Hey, Al, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you doing? Oh, you're welcome. Uh, I, uh, I'm i at home hibernating like everybody else. You're hibernating. Do you have family there with you, or are you, or are you alone? It's, it's, it's uh, been settled in China, but I don't believe them. And I'm wondering if you have any insight into what's happening over there. Right. So in China, and I'm hearing a lot of typing in the background. I'm not sure who that is. But in China, uh, they're claiming no new cases, at least no new cases from local residents. Uh, So if people come into uh, Wuhan or that province, uh, and I believe there are about 60 million residents in that particular region. Uh, Wuhan is a city of about 11 million, and then the surrounding uh, province is about 60 million. So think, uh, let's say, twice the size of California in population. So I, I suspect they may be massaging the data a little bit, and they're telling us no new I hear cases. You. I can hear you now. Can you hear me? This is, is that mine. Len? Yes. Okay. All right, Len. Well, oh, you got uh, Okay. All right. Len- let me just say hi to or uh, goodbye uh, to uh, Al uh, in Scarborough okay. who who called in. But thank you, Al, for that. And again, I I th- I don't think we're getting the full the full story from China. Uh, they're telling us that there are no new cases. I I would you know given their performance early on in this whole fiasco, I don't think that we can take them at uh, at face value. Let me put it that way. Uh, but let's hope. That in China, like uh, in South Korea, like in Taiwan, like in Singapore, uh, we are seeing a drastic reduction in the number of cases. But they're taking extreme measures. Um, And uh, uh, that's not where we're at here. I don't know if we're going to go that route, but we shall see. Al, thank you. Uh, We are delighted to have uh, Len Kasten with us, the author of Dark Fleet, The Secret Nazi Space Program, and The Battle for the Solar System. Hey, Len, how are you? Good, Richard. How are you? My pleasure. I'm great. Thank you. So, but uh, let me ask you, in in all seriousness, I mean, we always open the show, how are you? But how are you? Seriously, what's going on? I am fine. I'm fine. I'm still living in Arizona, as you probably know. Yes. Uh, It's going to be unbearably hot in about one month. And I'm going to try and find a way to get to Alaska at that point if I can. But for the moment, it's fine. Beautiful spring weather here. Things will heat up in about a month. Do you? Th- I mean, we have been told by some uh, that 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 might burn out the the um, the coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, in which case, that. yeah. Well, uh, then maybe you I, want to stay put. <laughs> well, actually, yes, but it's still unbearable. Uh, Kerry Cassidy says that daylight. Does seem to burn up the virus, but if that's true, why aren't why isn't that burned up in Spain? Spain has a sort of a uh, Mediterranean climate, and what about in uh, in Italy? Well, I mean, the, it's it's not real warm there yet because I have uh, we have a family and friends in in neighboring Greece, and uh, you will get some cool weather, some cold weather, 
uh, it's just starting to come, you know, it's just spring is just starting to uh, arrive now in, in those areas. So, okay. um, but, but, but we shall see. Okay. So hopefully in a month, maybe Arizona would be an excellent uh, sort of uh, case study to look at. Let's see what happens to the number of, of cases, but you're managing well and you're, you're doing okay. Yes, I am doing quite well. I want one one question I would like to raise with you, though. Yes. Uh, have you looked at the statistics, the flu statistics for last year, 2019 to 2020? About 50,000 people died yes. in the United States. Uh, right now, the numbers are so much lower than that. I can't believe they would ever even approach 50,000 in this in this case. Well, yeah, they're kind of projecting ahead and and saying that if we don't do this, that take these steps. Uh, then, you know, the numbers are going to continue to, you know, double and triple. And, and uh, they're worried about uh, it taking off kind of an exp- in an exponential way. Yeah. Um, however, I'm just wondering whether the cure in, might be worse than the disease, because how much longer can this economy stand having businesses shuttered, people out of work, um, I mean, I, I, they're talking about maybe a, a couple of months. I don't think I don't think we can last that long. And I and I also worry about people deciding, you know what? I've had enough of this uh, self quarantining and and social uh, distancing. I've got to be with my family. I've got to go with my friends. So we might we might get a little pushback in that area. It'll be. I think I think we're getting it already. Watch. I think we're getting it yes. already because the people in Florida are all on the beaches and they don't seem to care. They're all right. out on the yeah, beaches. It, it, well, let's hope the warm weather puts an end to this or this uh, this malaria drug they're talking about. Let's hope it has some in- impact. Um, so let's uh, let's move on to uh, this is a riveting book, uh, Lanyard, to be congratulated. It's very compelling, well documented, the secret Nazi space program and the battle for the solar system. Let's I wanted to jump in with a description of uh, the reptilians. Uh who are they? Uh, how did they get here? Where did they come from? Well, they came from their own home world in uh, the constellation of Draco. But that was a long time ago. They were actually here before we were. As far as, uh, as, far as uh, Stuart Swerdlow is concerned, they were here about a million years ago. And we came late. We came after that. A million. And did they live on the surface or did they live underground? They lived on the surface. There were two. There were two continents that emerged from the water. One was Lemuria, and one was Atlantis, and they inhabited uh, Lemuria, and they lived there for a long time. They brought their dinosaurs with them, and they used them for a food source. Uh, but before they got here, they destroyed a planet on the way called Maldek, which was between Mars and Jupiter, and that was a human planet, and millions of humans died on that planet. Then when they went by Mars, they stripped the, they stripped the atmosphere off of Mars, and the, the human population on Mars had to go underground. So they did, a, they did some damage on the way to getting to Earth. It wasn't that they just arrived here and took over Lemuria. And that was the situation for hundreds of thousands of years before we got here. So it seems as if almost as in, uh, and, and you mentioned, I think, Battlestar Galactica in the book, uh, how that sort of mirrors our history. Uh, it seems as if then the reptilians have been pursuing humankind uh, throughout the galaxy and other galaxies. 
Yes, it does. In fact, they destroyed 50 million humans in the constellation Lyra. That was our first contact with the reptilians, was at Lyra. And they destroyed three planets uh, and, and slaughtered 50 million humans. Were very peaceful and didn't have much didn't have much defense and didn't have much the uh, um, ability to defend themselves at that point because they weren't expecting such an onslaught. <clears throat> and it was after that that the Federation, the Human Federation, was formed and uh, scattered throughout the galaxy and started to uh, fight back. They realized then what they were up against. And how did they then decide? that they were going to take over this planet. I mean, what are the what was their their uh, their aim or their their uh, their MO? How do they intend to take over the planet or how did they at that time? Well, they're like pirates. They go throughout the throughout the galaxy and take over whatever they find that they uh, they would like to inhabit. They uh, according to Sverdlo, they now control 21 star systems in this in in this neighborhood. Um, and they are very, very developed in terms of weaponry and in terms of uh, navigational abilities. So they can pretty much they can pretty much do whatever they want, and that's why it was so easy for them to destroy uh, the civilization on Lyra, and then the one on Maldek. And uh, that was the situation until the Federation decided to do something about it. And. Talk to me about some of their 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 abilities. Uh, they can shape shift. They exist in a uh, at a sort of a different vibration rate, so they can sort of materialize or dematerialize. Talk to me about that. Well, they inhabit the lower fourth dimension, which we know as the astral realm. That's the, basically their home their home territory. And you know that from the astral, they can they can materialize into the third dimension anytime they want and appear right in front of you. And they can they can also uh, they can also dress up in a human body. Uh, these are the so-called Illuminati, and when they're in a human body, they probably have about anywhere between thirty to fifty percent reptilian blood. That's what we used to call the blue bloods, the uh, the royalty. Right. And uh, and that they, they call them blue bloods because they had more copper in their blood, and they do have more copper in their blood system. Interesting. So Interesting. That, that's that's the way it was until uh, the Federation decided they were going to do something about it. By that time, the Federation was all over the galaxy. There were human there were human colonies all over the galaxy. So we do have friends out there, but they can't do it for us. We have to do it ourselves. And at what point did the reptilians sort of move underground? Well, what happened was the Federation decided they were going to send a very fierce race of humans here to confront the reptilians. And they were not going to let them uh, take over the solar system. Uh, they were called Atlans, A-T-L-A-N-S. And they took over the continent that became known as Atlantis. And then the war broke, the wars broke out immediately between the Atlans and the reptilians. And the Atlans had very sophisticated weaponry. They loosened the, the, the uh, foundations of Lemuria and caused it to sink under the Pacific. At that point, the reptilians realized what, what what lay ahead of them, and they decided to go underground. But that was not necessarily a handicap to them because they lived underground on many other on many other star systems. 
And they immediately created a very high-tech civilization underground, including high-speed rail systems, uh, portals in and out into the, into the galaxy. So it wasn't really a handicap for them. But we, ne we then possessed the surface after that, and that became the golden civilization that we called Atlantis, which was very, very highly developed. Right. After Atlantis sank, uh, and we sort of, you know, pushed the reset button and, and had to sort of start over in terms of technology and so forth. Um, were the reptilians then interacting with more primitive civilizations? Initially, they initially they were. Uh, well, when they sank Atlantis, of course, uh, the humans on this planet reverted back to more or less of a primitive civilization. Right. Because Atlantis was a golden civilization. They had extremely high technology. They had high spirituality. And when the continent went down, they were scattered throughout the, the, uh, the planet. Most of them went to Egypt. That was the main, the main colony. And a lot of them went to the Himalayan mountains and set up wisdom schools there. But uh, basically, basically, all that was left was a rather primitive civilization here. At that point, the uh, the Federation decided to call a to call a convocation, and uh, they they uh, cr they created a a meeting in the Andromeda constellation, and uh, invited the reptilians to that meeting, so that peace could be established here on this planet. At that at that point, it was it was agreed that um, a new a new human civilization would be created on this planet, and the deal was that they would be they would have a reptilian brain, and the reptilians agreed with that arrangement, and the arrangement was between the Elohim, which is also a human civilization in a distant star system, and the reptilians, and I think the reptilians thought well if if they have the reptilian brain, they can they could control us. But the the Elohim wanted it wanted to let that wanted to let that be. They thought it would be it would be good for us to have that kind of a, a ba basically a tough disposition so we could defend ourselves. And uh, the, the human race that that we belong to was really created about fifty thousand years ago, what we now call Homo sapiens sapiens. That's who we All are. Right. Right. And were the the reptilians un, who were underground, were they uh, uh, occasionally coming up, uh, abducting, abducting humans? Uh, were they were they killing humans, uh, eating humans? Yes, they were. Yes, they were. We're a very tasty morsel to them. They drink human blood, they eat human flesh. So we're like cattle. We like being like kept like cattle in a cattle yard. And when they want some more food, they, they, they take us down there and they eat us. <laughs> Just like in that movie, uh, Time Machine. Exactly. Right. Like the Morlocks. The, the Morlocks. Morlocks. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly the way we find ourselves. That book and was they, written in 18, 1895. Did H.G. Yeah. Wells know about this? Was this a thinly veiled? Yes. Absolutely. They looked, the Morlocks kind of looked like the reptilians, too. If you saw the movie, <laughs> at least the way they were portrayed in Hollywood, anyway. Yes, yes. What did H.G. Wells know? I mean, he knew how a did lot. he know? He knew a lot. He was. He was. I would. He. I would call him a self-described uh, prophet. He wrote another story called "The Air: The War in the Air," 
Have you heard of that book? No, no. This was before the, the this was before we even invented the airplane. He he descri- described a air war between Germany and the rest of the world, and uh, way way ahead of anything that that could have happened then. The Wright brothers hadn't even gotten their third their third plane in the air at that point. And here he was talking about German bombers that were coming to uh, America, coming to the to, to to us, and all of that. And he even described that the leader was a man who was very much like Hitler. So how did he how did he know all this? He definitely had to have some prophetic abilities. Right, you can't, right. You can't just say he had a crystal ball. That's not enough. No, no. Well, um, we'll get into this in a little bit. We'll circle back to it. But you're talking about, you know, these advanced German aircrafts in the in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, And there was um, uh, a a painter uh, who was depicting what looked for all the world like the, the the infamous Nazi bell. Uh, Charles Delshow, I think his name was. Oh, okay. and uh, he was he was he had there were not not just one. It wasn't just one painting that looked somewhat like the Nazi bell. He painted the, the bell over and over and over uh, again. And he was a member of something called the German Sonora Aero Club Collective. And oh. again, we're talking we're talking about the 19th century. So the the connection between. Well, we'll come back to that. But the connection between the reptilians uh, and the Nazis, I mean, it is the subtitle, the secret Nazi space program. Uh, you write that that goes back to the 1920s. And a friend of Hitler's who was an occultist by the name of Dietrich Eckert. Tell me about Dietrich Eckert. Well, Eckert was part of the Thule Society. I think you've heard of them probably, right? Oh, yes. Yes. They were into they were into conjuring up. Uh, demons and and trying to get them to help them help them get what they wanted. Uh, Hitler became a disciple of Eckert, and he participated in three in these demonic sessions uh, for three years. By the by, the end of those three years, which was 1923, he was he was absolutely changed. Eckert Eckert believed he was the he was the um, incarnation of the Antichrist. And that's why he took him under his wing. And if 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 you want to talk about Nazi Germany, you, you have to talk about Dietrich Eckhart. Because what he said was before he died, he said, I he said, uh, I have called I have I have called the shots. He he will he will he will succeed, but I have called the shots. So he took he took credit for it even then, just just on his deathbed. For create the creation of the Adolf Hitler that we know, and I think that's where it has to start. It has to start there, right? And so through Eckert, Hitler was able to communicate with the reptilians. Yeah, he, they thought they were demons. They didn't know they were. They didn't know they were aliens. That would have been much too far out of their their purview to consider them as aliens at that point, because uh, they didn't know that. They didn't know that they were not native to this planet. They just uh, assumed that they were demons, and they were into demonology. They were very, very fervent demon seekers, and and they believed that 
the, the Hitler believed and Eckert believed that by forging an alliance with the reptilians uh, that they could conquer the world. Is that the idea? Yes, that was it. That was it. And the reptilians wanted them, wanted to use them because they knew that they could be, they could be very deadly and they could do what they wanted to. But if you read the first uh, two or three chapters in my book, uh, you know that I talked about I talked about how they influenced humans and uh, how they were able to do that. And I talked about the archons. Yes, uh, that got complicated. I know, but uh, it, I had to it, I had it, to it, had to write those chapters. Right. It, it, yeah, it does lay the groundwork, and I, I kind of decided to maybe kind of gloss over that because we only have the, the two hours, but and people right, can right. Okay. read about that more in depth for themselves. Dark Fleet, the secret Nazi space program, and the battle for the solar system, Len Kasten, my guest, author of Alien World Order. And um, so does do any of Eckert's writings remain, for example, do we know whether uh, he writes about reptilians uh you know appearing before hitler uh meetings with with reptilians or were they simply channeling them they were channeling them what he said on his deathbed was he will dance but i have called the tune that's what he said while he was dying so he knew exactly what he had done because he had been in, in touch with the with the astral realm he, he was able to to uh to channel them. Uh, and Hitler became very, very enamored of his relationship with Eckert. Uh, after his death, he, he built a stadium that, that then became a, a, uh, attached to the Olympic, Olympic Stadium in Nuremberg, and he dedicated it to Eckert. It became known as the Eckert Stadium. So they were very, very close. And uh, basically, he was the one that created the whole, the whole uh, link to the astral realm for Hitler. And he All himself, right. he himself was a fervent anti-Semite. So a lot of Hitler's anti-Semitism could be really ascribed to him. To Dietrich Eckert. All right, uh, Len, we're going to take a time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, the German expedition to the Antarctic in 1938, the Schwabenland expedition. And um, we'll continue to delve into the secret Nazi space program. Len Kasten, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Len Kasten, author of Alien World Order. He has a brand new one. It's called Dark Fleet, the secret Nazi space program and the battle for the solar system. So what's interesting is in Europe, 1938, uh, the, the, the Germans have uh, basically annexed uh, Austria. Uh, they've moved on Czechoslovakia, uh, and so they're 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 really ramping things up. They're they're just a few months away from invading Poland, and in the midst of this, in the midst of this, they launch this huge expedition to the Antarctic aboard this uh, this vessel, the Schwabenland, uh, to uh, to Queen Maud Land in in the Antarctic. What's what's happening with that land? Well, that was a very elaborate mission. They it was very carefully planned. It was very expensive. 
and they had top experts in just about every every academic uh, uh, every every academic field, including um, psychologists. They had uh, people who were specialists in in agriculture. They were they had planned they before they left Germany. They had a complete plan for the settlement of the Antarctic. So they knew a lot about it, and the reason they knew a lot about it was because the reptilians were were coaching them, and the reptilians were already there. So they basically gave them the order: come to the Antarctic and and set up a base here. Not only a base, a spaceport. It was from right. the Antarctic that they intended to launch their their space missions, and that's what exactly what they did. They were also building something under the ice. They called it New Berlin or the Führer's Shangri-La. Well, there was uh, an ancient there was an ancient city there already that was in ruins. And the reptilians more or less coached the Germans into taking over that city and building on building onto it. And strangely enough, that city was already called New Berlin. Now that that's a coincidence that's beyond belief, I know, but nevertheless, <laughs> that's that's what uh, that's what my research showed me. Showed me. I've also read where, where the uh, the Nazis uh, decided because they wanted to populate this base, they took they kidnapped something like ten thousand Ukrainian young Ukrainian women, blonde, blue eyed, of course, uh, together with something like twenty five hundred Waffen SS soldiers. So they had this breeding program uh, going on down there. I mean, what was the population of uh, of, of New Schwabenland at, at at its height? Well, according according to um, according to some some of the people who have studied it, it has now reached at least two million at this point. So it must have been pretty pretty uh, high even at that point, which was only what uh, perhaps uh, 50, 50 years ago. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of space down there. There are huge caverns, and uh, they have access through. Uh, cold water uh, channels from the Weddell Sea right to their landing place so that they can disembark in in rather a warm climate whenever they wanted to. So, yeah. So that was all known. That was all, that information was all given to them by the reptilians because they wanted to work with them together and go out into the solar system and into the galaxy. Right. I mean, it's interesting that, again, we mentioned 38 in this expedition. But so, you know, in the mid 40s, when they're they're in the midst of uh, a war with Europe, it's almost as if they decided Europe is lost. Now we need to focus on Antarctic, right? Well, I think they would have worked with Hitler more. They would have worked more with Hitler if they if they respected him and he hadn't tried to play general and uh, go off on his own. And the reptilians abandoned him pretty much in 1943, and that's when he decided to build his house in in Argentina. Ah, uh, he, okay. he had Borman. He had Borman uh, build him his house in Argentina. All right, point. let's uh, we'll take another time out, Len. We'll come back and uh, continue to talk about New Schwaben's land uh, and the Nazis on the moon as early as wait for this 1942. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
All right, welcome back. Len Kasten stays with us. Dark Fleet, the secret Nazi space program and the battle for the solar system. Uh, before we proceed, Len, how do people get a copy of the book? The book is available on Amazon or from the publisher, uh, Inner, Inner Traditions, also uh, at uh, most, most bookstores. Uh, now, Barnes and no especially Barnes and Noble. There aren't too many other bookstores left anymore. So that's true. That's true. Okay, so you mentioned that uh, at, at at a certain point, the the reptilians sort of severed the relationship with Hitler. Uh, why was that? Well, they realized he was trying to play general, and uh, the invasion the invasion of Russia was crazy, crazy. It was just uh, they were slaughtered there. And uh, we were supplying we were supplying Russia with tanks and armaments from Murmansk, uh, way up north. So what the Germans were losing, they couldn't replace, whereas the Russians could replace it because we were helping them. And the reptilians realized that uh, Hitler could not play general. He just wasn't a general. He was he was basically unbalanced. And they came to understand that. And so they abandoned him in 1930 in uh, 1943. And so then who essentially uh, from the, the Third Reich, uh, who took over, uh, I guess, as sort of the, the, the main go-between between the Nazis and the reptilians? Well, the, sci the scientists and the businessmen in Germany were much – none of them really liked Hitler at all, and they didn't respect him. So they were happy to get him out of the way, and sending him to Argentina was fine with them. They went to Antarctica. And uh, the scientific community in Germany was very advanced uh, at that point, and they didn't want, really want to have anything to do with Hitler anymore. They knew he was basically crazy. Uh, his, uh, his, his, boy, his voyages into the astral realm were making him crazy and unbalanced. And uh, he was not really a very effective leader, especially, especially to the scientists. who uh, want, that's, why, that's basically why they tried to kill him. That was the reason. He wasn't doing anything anymore. All right. So at this point, uh, the Third Reich is is more focused again on the, the base in Antarctic, new, in New Schwaben's land, uh, New Berlin, uh, moving their base don't, of don't operation. Forget, don't forget yes. that the, the, the Schwabenland voyage was in 1938. Right. And Germany invaded Poland in 1939. So this was, right. this was all a year before they were ready to start World War II. Which is which makes it amazing, really. Right. They would, right. They would, would, they would cross six thousand miles across the Atlantic to a frozen wasteland they didn't really know anything about a year before they were ready to attack Poland. Yep. Right. Yeah. It, 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 it almost makes no sense uh, because you would think that they would be pouring all of their resources into a war in Europe, which they intended on, you know, they intended setting Europe ablaze. So uh, you would think that they would have focused 100% of the resources on that. However, uh, so as the war in Europe is winding down, they decide to move their base of operation to South America, Antarctic, and basically uh, their, their plan, their focus now is to take over America, to infiltrate and take over America. Uh, so Operation Paperclip, this plan to get Nazi scientists uh, out of Germany before the Soviets could get their hands on them, right. uh, the Werner von Brauns and the Hans Kammlers and so forth, and the and the Dornbergers, all of these people that escaped the hang, hangman's noose in, in Nuremberg. Uh, I mean, it almost as if it was it was going according to the the Nazis' plan. They they were looking. It was like a Trojan horse, right? 
More or less. That's right. Yeah. You know, the, the, the German scientists took over, really, the, the whole operation. They were just very happy to get rid of Hitler and let him, let him go off to Argentina and, and uh, spend all of the, his ill-gotten gains that he had stolen from the rest of Europe. They didn't care anymore. He was no longer their leader. And after, they, after the assassination attempt failed and he started assassinating thousands of others, hanging them by wires, they realized that they could no longer deal with that man. So, but how did the, how did the, uh, the Nazis, I mean, they lucked out because the, the American, the Americans wanted, as I say, to exfiltrate as many of these scientists, the rocket scientists and so forth, and also the uh, intelligence officers and, and uh, who, who would join the OSS later, the CIA. Uh, how did they, fall into that trap because the Nazis, they wanted, a, an ex, they wanted a, a way to infiltrate the United States, and yet the Americans provided, provided the means through Operation Paperclip. How did well, that, that happen? Was, that, that was the plan from the beginning. They, that's the reason they invaded Russia and not, not America. They could have sent a fleet over here and invaded America if they'd wanted to. They had, the, they had the means to do that. But they wanted to keep America intact so that they could take it over because the American businessmen a lot of the American businessmen, Henry Ford, many others, were very were inclined to the Nazi philosophy. And they had two very important people in control. Alan Dulles and his brother, John Foster Dulles, were more or less running the government. And uh, Eisenhower was very naive when it came to politics, and uh, he did what they told him to do. And Alan Dulles was a known Nazi sympathizer. So that's how they did it. That's how they did it. Okay, now I just want to back back up here a moment. We're uh, we're approaching the top of the hour, and uh, at that time we'll open up the phone lines and we'll take questions, comments, and we'll continue to delve into this. But I I wanted to back up to uh, the development of some of the the advanced uh, aircraft, spacecraft, and uh, talk about uh, SS General Hans Kammler, for example, Werner von Braun, uh, and the development of something uh, called the Nazi Bell. Uh, and I alluded to that earlier, how that was being depicted in paintings going back to the 19th century. But let's can we talk about the Nazi bell for a little bit? Yeah, we could do that. Uh, I'll give you my opinion about it. I don't know too much about it, but I'll tell you what I what I think is the case with that. I think okay. that was more that was that was a teleportation device. That was that was for going through a teleport teleporting people. It really was not a physical aircraft. That's my opinion about that. And I think a few of the authors that I've talked to also agree with that. Uh, the teleportation that, device. Yeah, because it was really developed in the 20s before Hitler came to power. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I've read about something called Serum 525, uh, which was supposed to be, I guess, it, I'm not sure if that's what it was powered on. Uh, they, they also talked about this strange effect zone around the Nazi bell. Um, where, uh, where, where, uh, there'd be very strange effects if you were anywhere between, let's say, 500 and 650 feet. Uh, so as the teleportation device, and you say it was developed in the 1920s, this technology that would have come through channeling the reptilians? Well, there was a group of women in Germany then called the Brill Women. We're all mediums. They're all mediums. And they were in touch with a planet in the solar system with the Alde Aldebaran star system. 
the Aldebaran star system was very similar. The people, or the the uh, the people there were very much like the Germans in a lot of ways. In fact, the language spoken there was sort of a Germanic language. And these women, the the uh, the real women, all they wanted to do was get back there because they considered that their home. And so they were they were they were channeling all this inf- scientific information to help build that device. And this was in the twenties. This was before Hitler came to power. And uh, basically, they they eventually were, were successful. And uh, they were able to basically go through that teleportation channel or portal and leave and leave Germany completely. That's all they really wanted. They were never really Nazi sympathizers. They had nothing to do with Hitler, really. Uh, and I think the bell, that was what the bell was. And that the skeleton, the skeleton of that particular device re- still remains, right? Isn't that still intact? Um, I don't know. I, it was supposedly housed in some facility. They used, they called it the giant near the um, uh, Wenceslas mines near the Czech border. And uh, I I know that there was a there was an SS officer uh, at the Nuremberg trial. Uh, he was like an Obergruppenführer, Obergruppenführer, um, uh, Jacob Sporenberg. And and he he talked. He admitted during the trial that he had killed something like 60 German engineers, scientists, and technicians because he, he had to prevent them from disclosing the details of this of this technology. Oh, uh, so okay. so so we have a reference apparently to this technology at the Nuremberg trials from from this Sporenberg character. And that's, uh, but, that's fascinating. That's I didn't know that. Yeah. But what and then I also mentioned that earlier that Charles Delshaw, uh I don't I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It's D E L L S C H A U, Charles Delshaw. And uh he was a 19th century artist and he was you can you can find his his drawings and paintings online, and he was drawing something that looked all the world like the Nazi bell. And again, this is in the, in the late nineteenth century, um, which kind of uh, you know you you mentioned H. G. Wells, uh, yeah, this this prophet talking about this German um, engineering and aircraft before the Wright brothers even. And wasn't there a connection with the Nazi bell and the Aztec uh, so called crash? Which, which was really not a crash. It was really a landing. Do you know anything about the Aztec um, crash? Yes, I do. Yes, I, I've, I've, I've the shows on the Aztec crash in New Mexico, but I didn't know about a, a possible Nazi bell connection. It was a connection. I I just read about it. I, I did not really look into it in great detail, but I, uh, I, I found from some other people that there was a connection. Okay, we're just a, about a minute and a half or, uh, before the top of the hour here. Uh, let's just start talking about the Nazis on the moon 27 years before Apollo 11, uh, and then we'll continue after the break. So, uh, what, how did this, this, this was a, a, a craft launched from the Antarctic, New Schwabenland, I'm guessing. Uh, yes, exactly. That was their spaceport and that's where it was launched from, um, 1942. They had the, they had the so-called um, they had the, the spacecraft they had developed was the so-called Hanabu, and the Hanabu thir- three, or the Hanabu two really, uh, was what they was what they used. 
uh, Vladimir Terzisky. Have you heard of him? No, no. He was a very advanced Bulgarian scientist, and uh, he's the one that claimed that that uh, that that moon landing. I don't know where he got his information, but he got it from somewhere he claimed was very reliable. And he says that uh, the first the first man on the moon was a was a Nazi uh, officer by the name of uh, can't think of his name right now. And that was it. That was the first landing on the on the moon, 1942. And after that, they started they started burrowing under the surface and building uh, building their colony there. All right, Len, we'll uh, we'll take a time out, top of the hour, come back and discuss further. Dark Fleet, the secret Nazi space program. Len Caston, my guest, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to everyone listening in on our flagship station, AM 740 and 96.7 FM, Zuma Radio here in Toronto. And hiya to those of you tuning in on one of our fine affiliate stations across North America. Hey, you streaming us at zoomerradio.ca and on our YouTube channel, Strange Planet. And of course, howdy to all of you who've gathered in the live YouTube chat, wherever and however you're listening. I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Len Caston, the author of Dark Fleet, the secret Nazi space program. And the battle for the solar system stays with us this hour. And we've talked. We've been talking about the the Nazi reptilian alliance uh, that took place before the Second World War. How this alliance infiltrated the U.S. military industrial complex, or at least we'll get into that a little bit more. And we'll continue to talk this hour about uh, anti gravity propulsion technology, alien techniques of mass mind control, hyperdimensional teleportation capabilities. And uh, we'll also open up the phone lines this hour for questions and comments. In the greater Toronto area, call 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, and toll free from anywhere, 1-866-740-4740, 1-866-740-4740. Len Caston is a UFO researcher, freelance writer a former member of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena and the Mutual UFO Network, and and, uh, he's the author of The Secret History of Extraterrestrials, Secret Journey to Planet Serpo, Alien World Order, and again, the new one, Dark Fleet. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about the the Nazis using the spaceport in New Schwabensland in the Antarctic, uh, and they... uh, from there, launched a lunar landing in 1942. That seems almost unbelievable. I mean, do you do you believe that, Len? Do, is uh, are you satisfied that the the evidence is there that they landed yes. in 42? Yes, I am. Let me read to you what I said about Terzisky. The Mithi rocket craft was built in diameters of 15 and 50 meters, and the Schreiber Walter turbine powered craft was designed as an interplanetary exploration vehicle. 
That was the claim made by Vladimir Terzinski, who was a scientist. He claims it was this technology that achieved the moon landing as early as 1942. He says first landing on the moon by the Germans was at Mare Imbrium on August 23, 1942, using a Methi rocket. The first man on the moon was Captain Lieutenant Werner Feisenberg of the Kriegsmarine. That's what Tzitzki has to say about that. And he, he's a very reliable scientist, Tzitzki, and uh, uh, he knows a lot. And, and uh, one would imagine that if they were tunneling under the lunar surface um, and creating an underground base, that they were using the same type of slave labor that they used here on Earth uh, in, in Germany, Poland, and elsewhere. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Were they using slave labor? Well, yeah, that would be a fair assessment, except uh, in, that early, in those early days, they were not able to send large numbers of slaves to the, to the lunar surface. Uh, after a while, uh, many trips later, using the, using the Hanabu, the Hanabu 3, they were able to send in large groups of slaves. And, uh, of course, they had 36,000 slaves in Antarctica. They had already, uh, Himmler had already moved them there in those huge submarines. They, what he called the milk cow submarines that could travel the entire distance of the Atlantic underwater. So there were plenty of slaves in Antarctica, and I would assume then, once they started making uh, frequent trips to the moon, they were sending the slaves there. Absolutely. What can you tell us uh, about the, the Habanu 3? Uh, do we have any physical descriptions of this craft? Uh, in my book, I have a, a picture of one. Uh, you know, there's so many. There were so many pictures of the Hanabu online. If you just if you put that into if you just put put that in into uh, uh, in, in into uh, Google, you'll you'll get all kinds of pictures of them, including ex the exact uh, dimensions, everything. It's all out there. Right. Yeah, you have some uh, fantastic illustrations uh, in the book, and I'm just flipping through it now to see if I can find the uh, the uh, the Habanu three. Now, now, don't uh, forget, uh, Hanabu did not require Hanabu, did not require a very sophisticated launch facility because it was anti gravity, so it just ro rise up into the air and go, and that's the reason it was so easy for them. Right, they were not, right. They were not using rockets. Uh, and this is all technology. Now, at this point in in the underground base in uh, New Schwabenland. Are the Nazis working directly with the reptilians? Are they working side by side with them at this yes, they point? They are side by side, absolutely. And uh, that's how the Dark Fleet came to be. It was really uh, the reptilians helped them put that together and create a Dark Fleet base on the moon. And uh, they actually joined in with the Nazi with the reptilians in in uh, in conquest of other planets in in the solar system and in outside in the galaxy. They, they actually work together. And I'm just why, holding up a picture the dark, of the... That's, uh, why the dark, that's why the dark fleet had such advanced technology. I'm just holding up a picture for the those on the uh, YouTube live stream. I'm holding up a picture from the book. Uh, this is, it's called Alpha. Uh, Lujan Archivos Avni, the German moon base. I'm just holding up a picture of that. That's in Len's book right there. I don't know if you can... See that on the uh, the live YouTube stream, and then from from the moon in forty two, uh, a landing on Mars in forty five. Do I have the date correct? Yes, forty five was the first landing on Mars by the Germans, 
our our first landing on the, on Mars was 1962, so we they were there way ahead of us. And and the 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 uh, the Mars landing did they let, did they take off from Mars or was that also from Schwaben's land, New Schwaben's land? Well, they, at that point, the moon the moon colony was well developed, so they had the, they had the moon colony in place, and they had New Schwabenland in place, and uh, they had Argentina. They had all three places that they were using as a base, but mainly the main launch facility was Antarctica, what they called Base Two Eleven. That was their main uh, inter- intergalactic and in- inter- solar system uh, launch facility. Right. Okay. So um, at the end of the war. Uh, this SS general Hans Kommler, who was who had sort of taken over the the V two rocket program. Uh, Hans Kommler was basically Werner von Braun's boss at this point, I guess. Uh, he mysteriously disappears. Uh, it's claimed that he had committed suicide. Although we then we find out um, that he ends up that he was in the, uh, the custody of the U.S. Army um, at some point. So, what is Kamler, uh, or Hans Kamler's role in um, in New Schwaben's land? Does he end up there, or yes. is he exfiltrated to the U.S.? No, he never. He never came to the U.S., and he was never put under the uh, U.S. Army. Uh, when the, when when uh, when Patton's army got to Czechoslovakia, uh, he was gone, and there were many rumors that he had committed suicide. There were, there were four four rumors circulating that he had committed suicide, but. By that time, he was already in New Schwabenland, and he was the one that put together the uh, the anti gravity disc fleet in Antarctica. The anti gravity disc time, fleet. Because by that time, he had a lot of experience with it. Okay, and so Werner von Braun, of course, comes to the United States, and by 1960, he's director of the Marshall Space Flight Center in in, in Huntsville, which is the central facility of NASA. I mean, that's right. that's I. I think we all need to let that sink in. Here we have, uh, I mean, he was SS, Werner von Braun, right? He was a, right, he was a, a Nazi a, yeah, a Nazi SS SS. officer. That's right. How many thousands of people in London died because of him? Thousands and thousands. That's and here right. he is now being hailed as a hero in the United States and running uh, the Marshall Sp- Space Flight Center. It's, That's right. When you That's stop right. and think about it, it's unimaginable. It is unimaginable, and he was a Nazi, because by that time, by 1960, the Germans were in control of the of all of the uh, aerospace technology at area at uh, Base 211 and uh, elsewhere, and they were they were running the show. They were running the show. So they, and don't forget that Alan Dulles was a known Nazi sympathizer, and he was the head of the of the CIA, and his brother John Forster Dulles was the head Secretary of State. Right. And Eisenhower was very naive in terms of politics, so he did what they told him to do, and uh, that's how they got that's how they got uh, von Braun in as head of space flight. But now think about this for a moment, though. Um, uh, just think about this for a moment. At that point in 1960, the, the German colony on Mars and on the Moon was well developed. The last thing that the Germans wanted was for the Americans to get there. Okay. So naturally, with Werner von Braun in charge, he put the brakes on it, and uh, Kennedy pushed him, though, and he, they did have the moon landing, but that was as far as he would let it go. Basically, well, his, his job 
von Braun's job was to keep us away from away from the colonies on the moon and Mars, and he and he did it very well. That's interesting. His job was not to build up NASA. That's His job right. was was to prevent the Americans exactly. from getting to the moon. That's exactly the case. They had it all worked out. They were way ahead of everybody else. And von Braun was still very much a Nazi, believe it or not. Oh, I have no doubt about that. At what point did the Americans catch wind of the, of the, the um, well, we need to back up actually to 1947 because the Americans are, along with the British and the Australians, they send an, an ex, they send a, uh, forces to the Antarctic to battle the Nazis uh, in Operation right. High Jump. In Operation High That's Jump, right? We sent we sent a fleet of thirteen ships, including an aircraft carrier, uh, a whole a whole uh, brigade of of, of uh, Marines to destroy the Nazi base because we knew it was there. And guess what? Hans Kammler by that time had perfected the uh, the flying discs. They came out of the water. They they shot they they sank one of the ships. Sixty eight Marines were killed, and Admiral Byrd had no choice but to turn around and go home. That was the first real defeat of the American Navy. Right, despite the the German army surrendering in nineteen forty five, uh, nineteen forty four. I guess the war ended in Europe. Nineteen forty four. No, forty five. Sorry. Forty five. Forty five. Right. Right. April, and then April uh, forty five. And then August 45 for the Japanese. But the, oh, incidentally, were the Japanese involved? Uh, were they also involved in this Nazi reptilian alliance? They were, they were involved with the Nazis. I'm not so sure whether the reptilians had a direct connection with them or not. But uh, German technology was shipped to Japan. A lot of German te- advanced German technology was shipped to Japan, and uh, including uranium. That's a whole other story. The, the Nazis were ver- the uh, the Japanese were very close to an atom bomb themselves at that point, and so were the Nazis. Right, right. So, nineteen forty-seven, after Operation High Jump. Now, all of a sudden, we have the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting. We have Roswell. You mentioned uh, the Aztec UFO uh, incident. Uh, I guess about a year later. In, uh, in New Mexico, 1948. You have all of these UFO incursions. Uh, so what are we talking about here? Advanced German spacecraft, anti-gravitics, let, let, right? Let, let, let's not forget the 1952 flyover of Washington, D.C. Yes, yes. They, they just, they just brazen, brazenly flew right, flew right over Washington, a whole fleet of uh, German uh, flying saucers. And they were photographed, too. They were just saying, look, and what they were basically saying was, hey, this is what we have. You want to mess with us now? <laughs> That's, and that, was, that message came through loud and clear. And so the 47 Roswell crash, that was a German craft? No, that was not no. a German. No, that was, uh-huh. that, was, uh, that was from Serpo. That was from the, uh, that was from the uh, star system there. Uh, that was an alien race that crashed at Roswell. Actually, it was not a crash. It was the two two of their craft collided over Roswell because of the radar, and it was also a very 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 powerful lightning storm going on. So it screwed up everything, and that's why it crashed. But one alien did survive, and that was a very important survival. 
and why? Because uh, we took him to uh, Los Alamos, and uh, he stayed alive for another five years and told us a lot of things. And basically, he set up the exchange program. That happened in 1962. He was, he was the one because the craft that he was on that crashed at Roswell had a communications device on it. And uh, it was his under his advice that they went and retrieved the, the communications device, the scientists at Los Alamos, and were able to use it. They were actually able to use it to communicate with his home planet. And that allowed him to send uh, six messages to his home planet using that device. And that's when it was agreed to, that's when the uh, exchange program was agreed to. But the stipulation was that it could only, they would only agree to it 10 years into the future. So it, they, didn't, they didn't want to do it until 1962. And by that time, Kennedy was president. Okay. Uh, let's circle back then to the, the Nazi craft. What about the Aztec UFO incident? We mentioned that earlier. Uh, was that... A German uh, craft, do you suspect? You know, unfortunately, I don't know very much about the Aztec craft. I just know that others have considered it not really a crash, but a landing. I do know a lot about the Kingman crash, because that was very important. And, All right, tell us about that. Well, the Kingman crash was not a crash either. It was a landing. And uh, that that arrangement was, was made between the aliens and our people at Los Alamos. That they would send, they would send a craft back here for us to re to uh, to reverse to reverse engineer. By that time, we had more or less established a diplomatic relationship with the aliens, and they agreed to send a craft that we could use to reverse engineer, and that's the one that landed at Kingman, and it was taken away on a tra tank trailer across the river and up into Los Alamos. I'm sorry. No, no, Area 51. I'm sorry. I went to Area 51. Okay. So the um, after Operation High Jump in 47, uh, at what point do the Americans figure out that the Nazis also have a base on the moon? Well, you know, you have to you have to remember one thing, uh, Richard. That when you say the Americans, who are you, who are you speaking of? The military? U.S. government, the military, either or. But remember, remember that uh, the two Dulles brothers were more or less in charge of everything, and they were Nazi sympathizers. So what happened by that time is the American scientists and the American aerospace engineers were now working together with the Nazi engineers at Antarctica. Antarctica became an international, an international scientific base, much like Silicon Valley. The Americans and Germans were cooperating actively. Uh, a lot of the American aerospace companies were involved with the German companies. Uh, read If you want to learn out more about that, then read Michael Sala's books because he covers that in great detail. So by that time, the American, the American military had become Germanized. We knew about their, we knew about their, uh, their bases on the moon and Mars. We knew they were way ahead of us. They were keeping us dumb and dumber. And... When they wanted somebody to eat, they would go underground and uh, they would they would go get them and send them put underground just like in the time machine. So we were working actively with the Nazis at that point. America had become Nazified, become Germanized. 
So na- the NASA was set up as window dressing for public consumption. Exactly. And Von Braun was in charge. That's right. So here they had Werner Von Braun in charge of NASA. They had Kamler on in Antarctica. They were everywhere. And, right. uh, and it was Fritz no Cra- was, Fritz Kramer in the Pentagon, uh, right, Galen exactly. Reinhardt in the uh, Reinhard Galen in the uh, the OSS. Exactly, exactly. They were they were all over our our our, uh, our military. They were all over our systems, our advanced companies uh, in Antarctica and also uh, uh, in Argentina. So well, by that time, at that time, America had become under the control of Nazi Germany at that point. But it was no longer Nazi Germany. It was Nazi Antarctica. And by that time, they had developed a very, 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 very advanced uh, scientific facility on Mars and the moon. All right, Len, we are approaching a break. We'll take a time out, come back, and hopefully get to some phone calls. Dark Fleet, the secret Nazi space program, and the battle for the solar system right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Len Kasten, author of Dark Fleet, The Secret Nazi Space Program and the Battle for the Solar System. The question that occurs to me is, uh, why would the reptilians want Earthlings, humans, out in space? Well, they, they knew that they could control the Nazis completely, and they had the technology, and uh, that they would be obedient little good boys and do whatever they wanted them to, and... Uh, uh, their ultimate goal was control of the human race, of course, and the Nazis were humans. And yet they were very, uh, very congenial and very obedient to what the uh, reptilians wanted. Plus, they could always bring them food and blood, <laughs> you know, when they wanted it. So it worked out well. It was a marriage. I, in my book, I said it was a marriage made in hell. Right. Indeed. So the uh, the meeting well, two of them. There's uh, the meeting that Eisenhower supposedly had at Edwards Air Force Base, I think in 54, and then in uh, in 1955 at Holloman Air Force Base near Alamogordo, New Mexico, uh, where he's reported to have met with aliens. How do those two meetings figure into this, if at all? Well, you know, Eisenhower, having been a military man himself, was very was very aware of the fact that the American military – was now had now been taken over by the Germans. He knew that, and it wasn't really a German military so much as what it was. It was a mixed military. They called it the Cabal, and uh, he realized that, and that's why that speech he made in 1960. He was trying to tell us that and warn us about that. That speech that he gave in 1960, just before Kennedy took over, was considered. Um, more or less, a Eisenhower trying to let us know what had happened, but he couldn't. He couldn't say it directly, and uh, he had to use very careful language. But basically, what he was saying was, uh, 
that the American military was no longer really American. That the Nazis had taken it over. Right. So in those face-to-face meetings with uh, aliens, uh, and by some accounts they were greys, I think the... I believe the, uh, the one of them was with Grays and one of them the meetings with was with Nordics. So are these members of the the Federation or were the Grays aligned with the the reptilians? Explain that. The reptilians created the Grays. They were part they were part biological. They were part electronic. They were like a little slave little slave guys. They did exactly what the reptilians told them to do. So they couldn't even reproduce. They had to clone. They had to clone each other. Um, the reptilians were totally in charge of the Greys. They did all the, basically did all the, the dirty work. So what was the purpose uh, of that meeting, if it happened? Well, I think that it was an agreement in 1955 that uh, that, that we would let them we would let them uh, uh, kidnap or abduct humans. On a very limited basis, and of course they took advantage of it, and broke the broke the agreement immediately, and started abducting thousands of people. And uh, Eisenhower said yes to that. Uh, he realized later, though, just before he left office, that what he had done was was wrong. That the the, the Nordics, the Pleiadians, who wanted to wanted to help us initially. Uh, had a had a stipulation that they would help us if we gave up our nuclear weapons. And when Eisenhower discussed that with the generals, they said, "No way, we're not going to do that." So we had to turn them down. But the uh, the the uh, the Greys had no such stipulation, so it seemed like a good deal. I'm wondering then, in light of that, the this whole the whole Cold War. Uh, and the tension and the the, the buildup of nuclear arms. Uh, And here we have Nazi officials in the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. We have Nazis in the Pentagon. Uh, It it has been speculated that uh, Fritz Kramer, a Nazi general who ended up in the Pentagon, was the one that ordered President Reagan to visit the Bitburg, the, the cemetery, the, uh, the Waffen-SS cemetery in Bitburg, which caused quite a stir. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Yep, I know. Um, I didn't so, know it was Kramer. I didn't know it was Kramer, though. Well, that's one of the rumors. I don't know if Kramer was even alive at that point. This was in the early 1980s. Oh, it's yeah. possible. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering then, was the Cold War uh, fabricated, created in order to... Uh, I don't know, distract, keep, keep uh, the Americans or the, the you know, the Eisenhower from, from making a deal with the Nordics because they said you've got to give up your nuclear weapons and then we'll help you. But you can't give up your nuclear weapons if you're in the midst of an arms race with the Soviets. Well, you have to, you have to remember that the Nazis, right from the beginning, right from the 40s, were, were fanatically anti-Bolshevist and anti-Russian. So they were the ones who basically uh, wanted us to destroy the, the Russian, um, the Russian uh, technology. It was, their, it was their desire to do that. It wasn't ours, really. And uh, they were in control by that time. They were in control of our military. What we so-called call it the cabal, C-A-B-A-L, was a combined American, German, 
operation. So when Kennedy announced that uh, he pledged to put a man on the moon within the decade in that famous speech, uh, <laughs> we do it not because it's easy, but because it is hard. Um, that must have obviously upset the uh, the Werner von Braun's and the Dulles. Uh, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And so a lot of people think that we never really did go to the moon. I happen to think we did. But von Braun had no choice but to let it happen. But you can be sure that the last thing the Nazis wanted was Amer the American military presence on their colonies on the moon and Mars. So naturally, they did what they had to do because they were in control here. They could do it. They had von Braun. They had Kammler. They had uh, all the power and all the money that they needed to take control, and they did. Now, Eisenhower, could, Eisenhower couldn't, pre couldn't prevent it. There was no way he could prevent it. He tried, but he couldn't. Sorry, Eisenhower couldn't prevent what? The takeover. It was basically ah, a German right. takeover. Right, right. And so when Kennedy ordered uh, you know, NASA to, to start working on putting a man on the moon, uh, and you're saying that Werner von Braun at that, at that point had no, no choice to go along, uh, no, no choice but to go along with his order. Uh, was that then the reason for Kennedy's assassination? I think it was, yes. I think it was. He, he, Kennedy naturally wanted an American presence on the moon and Mars, and uh, that's the last thing the Germans wanted. They didn't want it, Americans there. So uh, Kennedy was determined, and I think that's why he was killed. And then so likewise, uh, LBJ, he also wanted it. Um, I mean, it, it seems that if they had killed Kennedy, couldn't they have just shut down the program? Kept well, they more, they more or less they did because uh, because uh, the pres President uh, Kennedy was fanatic about it, uh, whereas uh, uh, Johnson Johnson was really not that not that keen about it. And uh, I, I, I'm not saying that Johnson was basically influenced by the Nazis, but he he had no choice either. Just like just like Eisenhower did, they had too much power and too much technology. Too much of an advantage. That's why. That's why we never got uh, anti-gravity crap. That's why we never got uh, free energy. They had it on the moon. They had it on Mars. They weren't going to give it to us, though. And so, by this point, uh, you know, in the 1960s, we had Project Blue Book and so forth, and all of these uh, famous uh, UFO incidents. Are the majority of these then German craft? I think the one that appeared to Billy Meyer in Switzerland was, I think that she was, uh, Semyasi was German. And uh, that particular craft, I think, was, was German. Uh, I'm not sure about Van Tassel and the others, whether they were German or not. They could have been. Um, they did look German. They certainly did look fair-haired, blue-eyed. So I don't know. I don't know. What about well, the Biddy and Barney contact. Hill abduction? Well, there was, you do you do recall, I think, when you when you read about that abduction, right? Yes, yes. They mentioned you know that, didn't they mention a Nazi Betty? on board? That's yeah, right. Barry Hill, yeah. Hill said there was a Nazi on board. So they, <laughs> there's that connection right there, working with the Greys. Unbelievable. Yeah. 
Uh, let's see. We've just got about uh, a minute here. We'll, uh, we'll on the other side. We've got some calls uh, starting to line up, and uh, we'll get to those. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, the Apollo Eleven program and what did Neil Armstrong see on the moon, and what did he say? We'll uh, give you some excerpts from a uh, a, a conversation he had with a NASA communication uh, director that'll blow your socks off. Len Kasten, the author of Dark Fleet, The Secret Nazi Space Program, and The Battle for the Solar System, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Len Kasten and uh, we have Paul in Oshawa on the line. Paul, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Sure. Thank you very much for taking the call. And Ken, such a fascinating topic in today's world. Uh, my question right. towards my my question to you, Ken, is that um, with the reptilians uh, running the show on this planet, have you heard of any adversary to the reptilians, such as the insectoid, like the praying mantis? Of many reports of that, or uh, another species that uh, is with the uh, reptilians or against that, maybe a new kid on the block is coming to our planet. Well, the. Uh there the, there is a group of reptilian like creatures on on mars uh there were two indigenous populations on mars when the nazis got there one was insectoid and one was reptoid the reptoids were en- actual enemies of the reptilians themselves and they've had they've had battles between the two and the reptoids usually come out on top so the the Ger- the nazis had to get rid of both of those indig- indigenous populations on mars before they could create their um, their colonies, and uh, they did, they did because they uh, they actually used nuclear weapons there. I know that sounds I know that sounds far fetched, but that seems to be the case. They had to use nuclear weapons to get rid of uh, some of the aliens that were already on them on Mars when they got there. Is that how Mars lost its atmosphere? No, the Martian atmosphere was uh, was stripped away when the when the uh, the reptilian spaceship or planet, whatever you want to call it, went by Mars when they first arrived here, and the Mars and the Martians had to take refuge under the surface because the atmosphere became too thin to to breathe. But that was also done by the reptilians. That was the fault of the reptilians. All right. Uh, thank you for the call, Paul in Oshawa. Now we have uh, Gary. Gary, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Uh, hello, Richard. Thanks for taking my call. And, Where are you uh, calling from, Gary? I'm calling from Brantford. Ah. A voice out of your past, Richard. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> I, I <think laughs> Good to hear from me. you again. <laughs> anyway, my, my old grade eight teacher. My grade eight teacher. Correct. I just want to uh, congratulate you and compliment you on your vast range of knowledge of of many, many subjects. And uh, your brain is certainly working well in order to keep those things in order. So, well, you had a little something to do with that, I must say. Well, uh, that, that humbles me. Uh, but anyway, I would like to ask you and your guest about 
the swimmers, the Lake Bakel swimmers of 1982, were they uh, reptilians uh, on here on Earth, or is there? There doesn't seem to be a lot of of write up about them, and I just wondered if you knew anything about them. The, well, just repeat Lake, that. What were they called again? The Lake Baco swimmers. Lake Baco swimmers. They were discovered by uh, some Russian divers that were diving down at about 150 feet, and they encountered these nine-foot uh, creatures that seemed to be uh, able to uh, uh, maneuver around in the water. And uh, when they tried to capture one of them, they were rushed the surface by some force and uh, three of them died from the bends and the other one said that they were too shaken to talk about it but I'm wondering if that's the case I, I just would like to know is there any further knowledge that you or your guest have about those uh, creatures you know that's a fascinating story and it does sound like the uh, reptilians would have been involved in that because uh they they are down they are they are deep, deeply down to about 200 miles below the surface of the earth so and i know they have underwater facilities so right. it does it does sound logical it does sound well, very logical these creatures i'm sure if you google them you'll be able to see what they look like but uh they do look like uh reptilian creatures and uh they seem uh, uh you know, uh, accustomed to their surroundings at that point. Lake Bakel, of course, is the largest by volume lake in the world. Freshwater. Yeah, I've, in the world. that's right. I've heard that, yes. So, um, you know, it, it does sound very logical that they would have been perhaps reptilians. I agree yes. with that. And do you think that perhaps uh, there has been a... a uh, concealment of other aspects of this encounter because it happened in Russia? Well, if there was a concealment, it would be because the reptilians wanted it to remain concealed. They, I see. They, were, they, they were the ones, I think, that made sure that it was concealed. Right. Okay. Well, listen, thank you very much, gentlemen, for uh, answering my question. And Richard, uh, keep up with the good work. Thank you, Gary. It was great hearing from you. I, I, Mr. Prince, my grade eight teacher. Okay, thank you so much for that. Uh, all right, that that raises a good question, and that is that whether the you know other groups are also uh, under the uh, under control by the uh, by the reptilians. For example, uh, the Russians the, were the Soviets during the, the Cold War under the the clutches of the reptilians. Uh, the communist Chinese under Mao Zedong. That's a good question, Richard. And uh, I do know that no human group is able to really uh, beat off the reptilians. They're in complete control. They're in complete control. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if they had some sort of uh, agreement with the uh, perhaps the Chinese or the Russians. I'm not sure. I don't know anything about it, but it, uh, it's, very, it's very logical. All right, we're going to take a time out here. Uh, I think, let me just check with Carlos. Carlos, do we have about, what do we have here, a minute? 
Yes, we've got about a minute. Let me just ask you this. So we'll we'll pick it up on the other side, but we'll get the conversation going. And that has to do with the Apollo 11 uh, landing on the moon in in uh, 1969. Uh, so. At this point, there was no, you know, Werner von Braun could no longer stop it. The Americans were going to the moon. Uh, they were provided with the technology. But once they get there, uh, there is a little bit of interesting chatter uh, that the public apparently wasn't aware of between Neil Armstrong and uh, Maurice Chatelain, the chief of uh, NASA's communication systems. Uh, he revealed this in 1979. We'll give you the details of that conversation between Armstrong as he's setting foot on the moon uh, with uh, NASA back in Houston. We'll do that right after this with Len Caston, the author of Dark Fleet, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down, and it lands on The Conspiracy Show. With Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. A few moments remain with Len Kasten, author of Dark Fleet, the secret Nazi space program and the battle for the solar system. Len, how, how once again do people get the book? Uh, the book's available on uh, Amazon and also from the publisher, Inner Traditions, and at any Barnes & Noble bookstore. Uh, I would recommend getting it through Amazon, though. That's the easiest way to get it. All right. Also, so I think there's oh, also a uh, there's also a Kindle version. Excellent. Uh, so in uh, 1969, Apollo 11, uh, Neil Armstrong sets foot down da uh, down on the uh, the lunar surface, much to the chagrin of uh, <laughs> uh, many in uh, the U.S. military industrial complex. But they they couldn't, I guess, hold off any longer. Uh, there is a a legendary conversation, kind of chatter that's going on between Neil Armstrong and, I guess, uh, Control in Houston, which was uh, brought to light back in 1979 from a Maurice Chatelaine, chief of NASA communications uh, systems. Tell me about Maurice and, and what that chatter was all about. Uh Chatelaine confirmed that Armstrong had indeed reported seeing two UFOs on the rim of the crater. And Chatelaine said, quote, the encounter was common knowledge in NASA, but nobody has talked about it until now. And when he says until now, he meant 1979. Uh, Soviet scientists were allegedly the first to confirm the incident. And according to our information, the encounter was reported immediately after the landing of the module, said Vladimir Ashaza. Physicist and professor of mathematics at Moscow State University. So uh, NASA covered it up and censored it. Um, but what, what the conversation went something like this. NASA said, what's there? Mission Control calling Apollo 11. And Apollo answered, these babies are huge, sir, enormous. Oh, my God. You wouldn't believe it. I'm telling you, there are other spacecraft out there lined up on the far side of the crater edge. They're on the moon watching us. That's the conversation that was picked up by a VHF uh, receiving facilities. That by they bypassed NASA's broadcasting outlets, and they picked up that following that exchange. And that's between Neil Armstrong and Houston. That chatter. Yes, exactly. Yes. 
but the, the but the Russians know about it. It 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 kind of makes sense in light of Armstrong's behavior after he comes back to Earth, where he he should have been ebullient. He should have been in an, in an incredibly celebratory mood. Here he is, the first man to walk in the moon, and yet there he is standing before journalists. He looks like he's attending a funeral. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, um, <clears throat> they let us have that victory. They let Kennedy have that little victory, but after that, everything closed down. And um, the Nazis took over our our all of our research facilities and shut them down. And that's why we never went back to the moon. Why Why would they not have um, arranged for the uh, the landing module to land in, in some out-of-the-way place where they wouldn't have encountered uh, these craft? Or did they want them to see them so they would be scared off? I think it was probably a little bit of both, really. I did, they did want them to be scared off. They did want did not want them coming back. Since von Braun could not prevent them from ma- making that trip because Kennedy was so insistent on it, uh, they figured they'd let him have that little uh, that little victory, a little success, and that would be the end of it. And that's exactly what happened. They never went back. Everybody wondered, why didn't they go back to the moon? Why We should have had a complete colony on the moon after that. But it wasn't to be. Well, 1973 uh, was the last. Was that Apollo 16? Apollo well, there 17? Was, there wasn't Apollo 20. Yeah, tell me that. about Apollo 20. Yeah, you cover that in the book. Tell me about Apollo 20. There was a uh, two astronauts in that. One was Russian, one was American. And they encountered a, a huge spacecraft that, they, that was... Uh, I show it in my book. I show the size of it. It was the equivalent of several blocks of Manhattan. And uh, there's a picture in there of how it's compared against Manhattan real estate, and it's huge. And they uh, they estimated that it was probably about a million years old. That was a belief. It was 11,056 feet long. And uh, it was first photographed by the Apollo 15 spacecraft from overhead. But the Apollo 20 astronauts were able to actually get out and look at it and climb onto it. And that's where they discovered that uh, woman, that creature, uh, was really a, she was really human. She looked like, uh, she, she, looked, she seemed to be of uh, Mongolian descent. Uh, and this that's in the, the book. Right. This is a preserved body of a female alien pilot dubbed Mona Lisa, discovered on the moon by the Apollo 20 crew. Let me hold that up. And uh, hopefully people can see that. This is for our uh, you people streaming us live on YouTube. And then there's a photograph of uh, what she may have looked like while she was alive. Yes. That picture, that the, the top picture is the one that uh, they found, and the bottom one is the one that how she would have looked by recreation, by recreation, how she might have looked in life. And she looked, she looked just sort of oriental, uh, very human. Very human-looking, and uh, it's an amazing discovery. So Edgar Mitchell, uh, the sixth man to walk on the moon, has been was uh, very outspoken about the fact that uh, UFOs are real, extraterrestrials are real. They're interacting with our government. Um, he made that point very clear before his death. 
why didn't he go further? I mean, did he have encounters with uh, extraterrestrials when he walked on the moon? Why didn't he? I mean, he, he went so far out on the ledge to tell us about extraterrestrials. Why didn't he go that extra distance and tell us about uh, Nazi bases on the moon and, and uh, alien bases on the moon? Well, he couldn't become too much of a rebel. You know, uh, basically, the military was under the control of the cabal. The cabal was a combined uh, German and American military operation. He had to be very careful for the same reason that Eisenhower had to be so careful in his speech and choose his words so carefully. He just couldn't he just couldn't blurt out the truth because everyone would have thought he was crazy. Uh, and he would have lost his credibility. He had to he had to, he had to go soft he had to pedal softly and uh, he knew that. Uh, he did what he could. He did what he could, but he could only go so far. What do you believe what do you think of the the um the account of uh, Randy Kramer, who claims he was part of the Mars Defense Force, that he was uh, trained on on the moon, on the lunar base. Um, I think you also mentioned another pilot, Penny Bradley, in the book. Let's start with Randy Kramer. Do you think he's credible? Absolutely. I met Randy uh, at a conference in New Mexico. I had long conversations with him. I listened to his presentation. I was utterly convinced that he was telling the truth. And, you know, you have to understand something that these memories are still are still buried deep in his subconscious and he's had to pull them out little by little. Uh, so it wasn't it hasn't been easy for him, but I'm absolutely convinced he was telling the truth. And uh, he was one of several super soldiers. We call them super soldiers uh, that have been able to recover, recover their memories. And Penny Bradley was another one. And I talk about her, and I gave I devoted a whole chapter to her situation, to her story, and I would recommend that very highly that people read that because she was utterly amazing. She was utterly amazing. She was actually a pilot in the Dark Fleet on the on uh, on Mars. On, we've just got moon. about a, uh, we've just got about a minute here. But um, what what is this, this the current status? Are, uh, do the the reptilians? And the Nazis still have the planet pretty much locked down. Is there any hope that we might be freed from this? What's what does our future hold? There's only one way we can win this game. The human race has to develop its consciousness so quickly and so so drastically that they will no longer have any effect over us. It's all a it's all a consciousness game now. We have to we have to improve our consciousness, expand our consciousness, and once we've done that. Then we'll be we'll be, we'll be in control. We'll be in control. They they've succeeded by keeping us dumb and dumber, by feeding us uh, nonsense uh, TV shows and movies. Some some of them very good, but most of them are just to keep us under under wraps. And they're in control. They're in control. Uh, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the so-called uh, virus has some is something that they have created, and I'm. I'm quite convinced that they they are responsible for it, and I think Carrie Cassidy is also uh, a Project Camelot. Yes, Project right. Camelot. Yeah, Len, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this Dark Fleet, the secret Nazi space program, and the battle for the solar system. I appreciate your time. I really enjoyed it, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. 
Len Caston. All right, back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. My thanks to uh, Carlos Cagini and uh, Ryan White. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Or at least up the stairs. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.